G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth2letteryou.org. It's time for Gleanings from Genesis. I'm John Owen. Joining me all the way from Louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of the Tanakh Tour, Ross Nichols. G'day, mate. Hello, John How are you? Number one best-selling author that you are. Uh, I'm doing very well, thank you, my friend. And speaking of uh, books, of course, you've just released the uh, Moses Scroll, and that's firing along. Uh, but we're here to discuss the book of Genesis from the TEB, and in North Carolina, the professor of ancient Judaism and early Christianity at UNC Charlotte, president of United Israel, the editor-in-chief of the Transparent English Bible, the TEB, of which the book of Genesis is now available at uh, Amazon in both paperback and Kindle. Welcome, Dr. James Tabor. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you, Jono. Good, Good to, to be you with back, you. It's been... You know, I was, I think it was December. I had to take off the winter for dealing with some family things, but I'm back now yeah. and uh, we're ready to go. And I'm glad and that you're, you're here. Now, quickly, I, while you're here, have you, there was, speaking of books, and before we jump into the TEB, have you yet released, uh, you, you wrote a book on Mary. I know it's been released in France. Is it released in the States yet? Yeah, that it's coming out with Random House or Knopf is actually the publisher of this book. And they haven't set the date yet. And the reason is because so many books were held because of the politics, because of COVID, because of all mm -hmm. sorts of things in our world. Uh, but it's done. It's ready to go. And as soon as they give me the date, we'll go with it. And some exciting things are happening. I did okay. want to say too, Jono, about yes, another book. Uh, well, first of all, the, t the book of Genesis for Passover, starting like yesterday, the the 10th of Nissan, I've dropped the price, Passover sale on this book. So the paperback is 15 instead of 25. That's a good savings. The Kindle is five instead of 9.99. There's also a hardcover, brand new. And oh, really? that's been dropped. Oh, it's really nice. I oh, I have to get the hardcover. I forgot that that one got put out in hardcover. I need yeah, to get that's that. Really beautiful. So I wanted to say that, and some of you will remember Restoring Abrahamic Faith. It was mm -hmm. published way back in 208. One of my favorite uh, books. The edition most people have. And yeah, mm -hmm. you and I interviewed on that, I think, in some detail. But I've revised it, and it's coming out on Shavuot, uh, which gets us, I think, into May. I don't have the date right in front of me, but the Feast of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going to come down from the mountain with the... <laughs> restoring faith in my hand and i've really got some uh you know revising correcting updating but also some really new insights will be in that book hey, so, so where can people get hold of that i mean that, is that something you can get in amazon or well, it's not out it'll be on amazon as well and in bit. kindle see it was never in kindle uh -huh. and for the first time people all over the world will be able to pick it up for five bucks you know it's going to be great for people so many people have wanted it, and yet it costs more than the book to mail it almost anywhere yeah. by airmail. So. so listen, are you going to make a hardcover of that one? Yes. Hardcover, ah. paperback, Kindle is the way to go. So. See, this is, this is what I like. I'm going to get a hardcover of both the uh, Book of Genesis and Restoring Abrahamic Faith, two of my favorite books, and I can give my paperback to, uh, to a friend. There we go. Done. There yeah, go. I love – yeah, and I want people to give – you know, one reason I dropped the price, uh, you know – Amazon is kind of a, a service for us, and same with Ross's book. It's not so much making money as getting it out to people. So the price can fluctuate. If it sells a lot, the price can go down. Uh, Amazon actually does that automatically to be competitive. Mm -hmm. So it's, they're great to deal with. I really appreciate their marketing schemes. 
So uh, anyway, looking forward to uh, talking about Genesis again tonight. It's going to be yeah. really interesting. Before we jump off uh, the topic of books, though, Ross, are you going to are you going to bring out a hardcover eventually of the of the? You Moses know, it, it's funny. It's funny you put me on the spot like that. Let me <laughs> tell you what James didn't tell you. Um, mm. We we joke about how well the Moses Scroll is doing, and I'm blessed. It is doing very well. Mm. But James is part of what I believe is sort of a, it's for established authors that that they offer this. It's really a beta program, if I'm not mistaken, on the hardcover. Um, I didn't get that option when I signed on. And uh, so I don't know if that will come my way or uh, maybe okay. if they'll wait until I do another six books and I catch up with where James is at now. So I don't know, but but uh, that's Ross, not I think option. I'm on ten. Uh, ten. Not oh, six. ten. I'm on ten. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see, it see. may take me a few more books, but anyway. No, right, I think how- that you know, they'll they'll roll that out. I I did it as a trial. I wanted to, I wanted to see if it was beautiful. I like hardback. If it's I a do. book, I really like to keep forever and put in. Uh, my personal library. I prefer yeah. hardcover. And all Otherwise, of these books certainly are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so it's still selling very, very well. That's the Moses Scroll. You can find that. MosesScroll.com, you get all the details. We are picking up where we left off, and that was in Chapter 3. But uh, fortunately for you and I, Ross, James has done all the work, and we have a top 10. I love a top 10. Uh, top 10. <laughs> I do. These are great. I love this. Top 10 Genesis gleanings from Chapter one to chapter three, James. How do you, how do we want to kick this off? I just want to knock them out one through ten. And, Go on. You know, I didn't prioritize them. I did them in order that we covered them. And this will be a review for people, and you'll be able to get in this single program the highlights of what we've covered in all those weeks in the past, and get us all caught up. Good, nice. So, I'm with number one, or or are you, you know, are you ready to go with number one? I'm, it's I'm ready the to first go. verse of the Bible. Everybody has it memorized. My students even know it, even if, you know, they're not avidly Bible students. Mm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. There it is. Not translation. Not a good translation. First of all, it sounds like he's creating the heavens and the earth. Yeah, I just said that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not what, what it says is literally at the first of or when God began creating or ordering the heavens of the earth. So that first verse is not about the origin of the universe. It's about a desolate planet swept by wind, covered with water, empty and void. And then it's about engineering that world into the beautiful planet that we live on, the good earth. So it's really a story about how the earth became the good earth. Not the origin of the universe. Now, there are texts that talk about God bringing about the whole existence of the universe, but this isn't one of them. And so the word you could use when, I used at the first because I was trying to add as little possible to the Hebrew. But basically, it's, and if you read, you remember you did this, Jonah, I'll, I'll give it a try. Hmm. You, you kind of have to like this at the first of elohim creating the skies and the land and the land was desolate and empty and darkness over the face of the deep and the spirit of elohim was hovering over the face of the waters and elohim said let there be light so literally at the first he said let there be light and you quickly describe 
how desolate and empty it was. You see the idea? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. insight number one. Anything about that you want to add? Or just, yeah. I think well, it's I- an amazing insight. It is an interesting thing. I've I've often read, though, that many, um, well, if not all creation myths uh, from the Middle East are uh, always beginning with matter. Matter is already there. By contrast, that which I've read says not so with the Genesis account. But you're saying, well, that's not exactly true because it's beginning with matter. There are other verses in the Tanakh that describes God as creating all matter. Is that, that's what you're saying, if I understand you correctly. That's right. Uh, and this is about the uh, ordering of the heavens above the sky. It's actually the mm-hmm. word sky, if you my translation. So I think that's important because that, that way we can avoid all these cosmological discussions and try to do astrophysics with Genesis and so forth and <laughs> simply talk about the wonder of this planet and look out at night, Passover's coming, look at that full moon. You want to know desolate and empty? Look at the pictures of Mars that are coming up back. You want mm. to know what Tohu Vabohu looks like? You yeah. got a color picture of it. Now, mm-hmm. what would it take to put what I love to call DNA engineering? I'm not a scientist, but you know what? Coding is the key to DNA engineering. Coding. And we only discovered that in the 1950s, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning all of Everything happening on the planet that's non-geological, that we call bio, it's all DNA engineering. And it's code. Code does not happen by accident. You don't even get a code of one, two, three, four, five by accident. Think of two, four, six, eight, ten. These are codes. And so you have this DNA strand with four units ordered in billions and billions of patterns in order to get everything we see. It's unbelievable, but we know it's true because yeah. we've been able to map the genome, and there it is. Ross? Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I love the way you worded that point one. It's an ordering and origin of the universe, and, and that, like you said, it comes out so clearly that when we enter into the story, as we approach the text— it just says that the land was desolation and emptiness. There's darkness. It's tohu vavohu. And then all of a sudden, this uh, hand almost takes in and creates all this wonderful life. So it's I really like that idea better than, uh, as some people say, ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's not what we're talking about here. We have something. We just have something which is not uh, yet made into a life-giving planet. Mm-hmm. Number so, two. number two, All number right. two. We've already said the word Elohim. Mm-hmm. Who? Now, this is a plural. Most people know that. Uh, mm-hmm. But in this translation, whenever you've got Elohim, I give you Elohim. If you've got El, which is singular for God, I give you singular. If you've got El Elyon, I give you that. If you have El Shaddai, I give you that. If you have Jehovah, I give you that. So I think it's really important to know these designations. Now, I'm not going to call them names tonight. I'm going to do a little shift with people. I'm going to call them designations or way of portraying the nameless one. In other words, if I name the gods and goddesses of all the nations of the world, Naming the powers, so to speak, I just give them a name. Zeus, the sky god. Jupiter, the sky god. Isis, 
the goddess of fertility, and so forth. I name a power. The idea here is that the force, I like the word force because of Star Wars, or power, <laughs> the force of all forces, and then a singular verb. Mm-hmm. It blows your mind. It's the force of all forces created, said, spoke, called. Now, what is the force of all forces? It's the plural of El, which means force, or Eloha. El Elyon, the highest force. El Shaddai, the most powerful and the most nurturing force. And so people say it's not a name, and Yahweh is the name, Jehovah. That's going to be point three. You know, really, I, I kinda, I, I, I've been really thinking about this, probably a lot because of the Moses scroll. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Elohim is a name as much as Yahweh is a name. Let me explain that, and I'll do two and three together here. We know, this will be point three, that Yehovah, will, the one who will be and is and was, you call it a name, but name, Shem, means a way of de- designating someone, right? Mm-hmm. So Abel says, oh, I've gotten a man from the Lord. I'm going to designate him, you see. So we're designating the force of all forces. And what do we designate it? It's not a little talisman that we just need to say, like some magic set of syllables, as some people seem to get off on you know, the name, and you got to mm-hmm. say it this way or that way. Mm-hmm. But what is the concept? In other words, Yehovah, will is, was, is explained in Exodus as Ehiyeh, Asher Ehiyeh. Mm-hmm. I will be what I will be. Yeah. Now, how are you going like to name that? How are you going to name that? As God just said, I will be, I'm becoming what I'm becoming. Everything is as it is, will Mm -hmm. is what. You can't put a name on that in the sense of delimiting it, you see? Mm -hmm. Like each of us is delimited. I'm James Tabor. I'm defined by that name and by my birthday and by my age and where I live. You're defined by your name. But the nameless one, how do you define pure personal being all-knowing, all-powerful, active, other than saying the force of all forces, the one who is and will and always, the one who is and was and always will be. These are more designations. It's okay if you want to say name. I'm not against that. But remember when uh, when Moses says, well, what's your name? He says, you want to know my name? I guess it's just whatever I'll be. Mm -hmm. So look, if you're, I'm going to, I'm going to put Jehovah in the translation. No problem. I'm going to put Elohim, but but let me just put this together for you because we're going to come to two, four. This is still point three and we get Jehovah, but it's Jehovah Elohim, you see. Mm. So. So it's all encompassing. Both both of these terms are all encompassing. But you could translate Elohim Jehovah, Jehovah Elohim, as Mm. Elohim, the ever-living one. See what I'm saying? Or you could translate the ever-living one who is the force of all forces. Yes, Mm -hmm. it's putting it all together. And so I just want to make that point that... uh, you know, the the plural with the singular verb, the force of all persons. My favorite designation personally is the one Abraham used, which is El Elyon. The only prayer we have of blessing in the time of Abraham is Baruch Atah El Elyon, Konei Shemayim Ba'aretz. Blessed are you, force most high. I love it. Force mm-hmm. most high, maker of heaven and earth. And actually, it isn't maker. It's it's uh, Kone is more possessor. like possessor. 
possessor, possessor. owner, yeah. meaning I control mm-hmm. it, which is Genesis 1-1 again. That, there it is. Yeah. Does that make and sense? It, it does make sense. And as you said, um, uh, I, I, I too have been reconsidering the nature of Elohim in light of the Moses Scroll, uh, the book that um, that Ross has just released. And one thing that's been on my mind is a quote from uh, a book, uh, which I have in front of me, The History and Religion of Israel by Anderson. And uh, if I can just yes. read this to you, James, and uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering about your opinion here. He goes on to say, it has been inferred that the above titles and those titles that you've mentioned here, El Eloah, El Elyon, El Shaddai, and so on and so forth, refer to pre-Israelite Canaanite usage either to separate local deities or to different local manifestations of the one supreme El. The latter seems more plausible position. What What do you think of that? Is that is that what you're, what you're saying? No, it's not what I'm saying at all. Different local manifestations I, of one supreme El? Well, the thing is, the modern scholars think that the Canaanites and the Moabites and various nations had their mountain gods, and then they picked up these names, and they called them by these various names. Uh, I would go kind of the other way, that there are these various names, and the Hebrew thought is, well, how would I name the nameless ultimate of all names then? Mm. And I think that's how they came up with Elohim and, right. so, and so Yehovah is, as well. So. And, 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 is that, and this is the reason why it is a plural referred to in, in the singular, because it is all the powers, it is all the forces, all the designations of, uh, exactly. of manifestations of El. Okay, no, I think, I think we're both... Uh, and you can't pin it down. You can't. Right. The, the Yehovah means, you know, some people used to call it the eternal God, Jehovah Elohim. Mm. That's not too bad, but I, I'd rather say the eternal force of all forces. And then you've sure. really got it in English. Sure. So. One, one comment. Yeah, when, uh, when James ties in this Genesis 1 and Elohim, the creator, we're introduced to the creator of uh, the skies and the land, basically. If you look at this uh, prayer where he's referencing, when James references this prayer, it's Genesis 14, 18, and it is very, very beautiful, uh, 14, 18, 19. And it, it's interesting, though, that it says, uh, to El Elyon, Kone Shemaim Va'art, same order as what we get in Genesis 1. So it is a direct tie to this highest Absolutely. L. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I think that's really uh, very interesting. So, yeah, And, and you know, um, I want to point out that it later, and this goes under number three again, and then we'll move on. When the Nakash that we'll get to and the woman are talking, he refers to Elohim like a name, just like people would say Jehovah. He goes, well, Elohim knows this and Elohim knows that, mm-hmm. you see. And so mm-hmm. it isn't as though you can't say Elohim as a name the way we think of the word name. But I prefer yeah. the word designation. So number four, I love this Ready? Good, 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 exceedingly good. That was seven goods. Mm -hmm. Number four, what do we learn? We learn that the material world, so-called, this ordered planet, Earth, that we're reading about here, is not a lower, inferior, mucky, dualistic place, as the Mm -hmm. Greeks thought, and the heavens above are where we really belong. As Robert Frost said, the earth is the place to be. I don't know where it's likely to go better. Mm -hmm. There's nothing 
heaven, except the biblical view is that the earth gets recreated into a new form, not, and then God comes and dwells up with humans mm. in an intimate way. And so this good, 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 boy, it just goes against almost all religions that see humans as stranded, fallen, into forsaken. the dark. Di forsaken diamonds in the muck diamonds in the mud and we our souls are the pure souls of light that belong above this is gnosticism this is every practically every religion i can think of mm -hmm. uh, that wants to get us away from the good earth and i just love the way you have these seven it's like drum beats you know mm -hmm. with with six strikes on the chord good and then very good and so that's number four mm. number five is two firsts one is what are we here for be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth first command to human beings mm. and another is what do we eat because if you're going to be here for something you have to also sustain yourself and we have the eden diet every green plant every fruit bearing tree every seed i've given to you so we get the ideal eden diet that we talk about and that's picked up in the prophets as you know isaiah 11 isaiah 65 mm -hmm. daniel when he's in captivity he says just give me the eden diet yeah mm -hmm. remember that daniel one mm -hmm. and he prospers on it so uh, number five, I love it because it, it takes us back to the beginning. What's the first commandment and how do we live? Okay, number six. This is kind of goes with number four about good, 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 good. Humans are living life breathers. That's how I translate it. Nefesh kaya. But who, what else on the planet could we call living life breathers? What other category and the answer is other breathing creatures yeah look at 20 <laughs> just about 20. everything yeah uh and so this idea genesis 2 7 terrible translation and god breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and adam became a living soul so unlike other creatures adam has an immortal soul he's eternal and here you have again greek philosophy coming in Almost every religion teaches that humans are different because they have an immortal spirit. And yet, if you read it in the TEV or in the Hebrew, we are nefesh kaya. A dog is nefesh kaya, a living breather. So I actually translate it living breather because nafash means to breathe. Mm -hmm. It just means you're an air breathing animal. And when it says Adam became a living soul, meaning a living life breather. Literally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. There is eternal life spoken of. I'm not going against eternal life, but Adam does not have it. It's so important to see here. And he doesn't have it any more than a pig or a cow or a dog or a cat or an insect or anything that lives on oxygen, which is every life breather on the planet. Even fish are net fish. Yeah, they take they, oxygen through their gills. So, so is, the, is the difference, James, uh, just in the text where it says that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam uh, uh, and, and he became a living? So, I mean, we don't have that in regard to uh, the animal world. Is that correct? No, we do. Number we seven, do. breath of life which is the nishma. That's, people sometimes pronounce it nishama, like humans have nishama. 
All creatures have the breath of life. If you begin to look up breath of life, you'll see that the other creatures have it. Every creature under heaven that has the breath of life, it means a nefesh kaya. Nefesh kaya, living breathers, all have the breath of life. So it's not an immortal soul put into a body, but it's something that all living creatures have. And humans then, I call them soil creatures. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a little bit strange to people's ears. But remember, Adam means red dirt. And literally, it's not his name when it's first mentioned because male and female created he them, which is going to be number eight. Mm-hmm. So we can't call him Adam. I mean, later we can call him the man, Adam, and the woman. But at this point in this story of Genesis 1, humans are soil creatures, dust of the earth. They don't have eternal life. Death is not life. It's returned to the dust. Dust you are, to dust you will return. So we have texts in the Bible that says humans, his, your life goes forth, your breath grows forth, and you return to the dust. That's so important when we get down to number 10 and talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eternal life. But humans don't have eternal life in Genesis 1 or anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Now, we could talk about death and afterlife, and it's not non-existence, because there's a shadow or shade of the person that's spoken of as being preserved in Sheol, usually under the metaphor of sleep, uh, if you want to get into death. Mm. But uh, Genesis just says, you know, you will surely die, you're going to return to the dust. So, breath of life is essentially the animating force that we all have uh, once once the uh, the organization of our body is made he shapes Adam in chapter two and then breathes into he animates him literally mm. he breathes into him the breath of life now that, so that look point up of animation of that that point of animation James though you don't see that as uh, as Elohim imparting something to to man that differentiates that that separates him somehow from the animals. That's not what we're seeing in Bereshit is what you said. Not with the phrase breath of life. Not with that. You know, as we go through Genesis, you're going to find that phrase used for all creatures. Okay. Uh, And so it's not a special term. Yeah, one thing I was just going to add, I think to underscore what you've said here, James, in my view, uh, nefesh is probably one of the, or the translation of nefesh as soul has created one of the greatest confusions in uh, people's understanding of what the Bible presents, particularly the Hebrew Bible. Ask anyone on the street, anyone in uh, your religious circles, this is in Christianity, it's in Judaism, this idea of the immortal soul, because they they see uh, a human as comprised of body, soul, and spirit. So what they think is, and you see this all the time, people say it, it's like, I'm not really a body with a soul, I'm a soul with a body. You know, like it's, they want to imagine that this is a component of their makeup, Mm. where what we get in the Hebrew Bible, for instance, in Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33, two very clear texts, that the soul, as the English would have it, the soul that sins shall die. So it's this this idea that you become a living soul when you have this breathing, life breather part. The spirit basically animates the person. But you take the breath away, that person becomes 
uh, a dead soul, basically, if you're going to use soul for nephesh. Well, is that- the Hebrew Bible uses that. A dead nephesh is a dead yep. animal in the road that you're not supposed to eat. It's, it calls yep. it a dead nephesh. Yep. You know, I'll give you an example from science that I got from a biologist, and I've never forgotten it. He said, when we, we can freeze uh, living cells down to a temperature slowly enough that all metabolic activity ceases. Mm-hmm. Okay, meaning nothing's going on in the cell. It's not respirating, no oxygen's being exchanged, there's no processes in the nucleus. It's literally in hibernation, we'd Suspended. say. Okay. If you bring it up slowly without damaging the tissue, it begins to be animated again. You see? Mm-hmm. Now you say, was it dead? No, it wasn't dead because it wasn't, it can be brought back. You're not resurrecting it, you're reanimating it. Now, what do you do? Why is it brought back? Because oxygen, once again, begins passing into the cell and the metabolism kicks off again. So I've never forgotten that because I thought, wow, that is so amazing. It's not like a mysterious thing that has to come into the world, but it's this marvelous uh, creative organization, Genesis 1 again. Let there be light, you know, let there be the animals, let there be the plants, let there be all these things mm. that simply are animated by by life. But, the, you know, it's not a thing out there. It's a process that's observed. You understand mm-hmm. what I mean by that? Uh, there's, so will there be life on Mars or the moon or anything like that? I know a lot of scientists think ultimately it just happens spontaneously. I don't think so because mm. the cell is so complex yeah. that I don't think it would just create itself and then animate all of a sudden. Mm. But once you have it, you can stop all animation and then bring it back without praying over it or asking God to raise the cell from the dead or anything like that. Being silly here, but you see my point. Sure. I <laughs> think that confirms what we're reading in Genesis. And before people go away thinking, oh, wait, so there's no eternal life or anything, wait for number 10. We're on number seven. And actually, even number eight. You want me to go on? Go ahead. Number mm-hmm. eight. So, because be, humans, we're talking about. Yeah, look yeah. at this. Humans are in the Elohim image and likeness, and male and it. female, together as mm-hmm. one, so that the female is a help, etzer, corresponding to him, and he's corresponding to her. You can think of sexual union. We've talked about this. You can also think of the two becoming one, representing the completeness of the Elohim, Mm -hmm. uh, having a child. Remember, we talked about that. Uh, A man leaves mother and mother, the two become one, they cling to one another. Uh, Yes, there's a union uh, physically and through love and through devotion and so forth, but also be fruitful and multiply. A child Mm -hmm literally is coming from the two it's amazing but think about this if humans are in the elohim image and likeness male and female together it's as if god made a mock-up i like the idea a mock-up disposable clay model of a future god l that would have eternal life meaning that essentially the elohim here is creating humans to become elohim Mm-hmm. And that's what Kosh says. Remember, you will be like Elohim, knowing good and evil. Uh, but in the present stage, we don't have eternal life. And I think that's probably a good thing because 
Do we want to immortalize the kind of history that this planet is experiencing right now? Do we want that to go on forever? Or do we want there to be a kind of accounting and termination of each of us as we live our lives and are raised from the dead at the end of time and account for ourselves? And then God decides, if you go to the book of Daniel, some awake to everlasting life, but some awake to shame and and uh, judgment. So uh, it really makes sense to, I, I see hinted in Genesis 1, let us make man after our likeness in our image, the whole divine plan mm. of many children of God, not just clay models, but permanent versions in the future. Now, I know I'm going to other scriptures to get that, but what do you think of that? What a purpose. If the purpose of a human being is to become, is to share with the creator, just like our children share with us, a level of being, of communication, of understanding, of, of creativity, of love. Isn't that amazing to think about? Yeah, Psalm 8 always comes to mind, and, and uh, it's this idea that James is painting this picture of the great human potential. I think too many times people have almost been trained to say, oh, I'm nothing or this or that. But in the Hebrew Bible, that's not the case. The case is that, as Psalm 8 says, you have made him. What is man that you are mindful of him, you know, and the son of man and so forth? You made him a little lower than, in Hebrew, the Elohim. Now, translations get all over with this, the heavenly beings, whatever. But literally in Hebrew, it's this, you've made him a little bit from Elohim, you could say. So the idea is that there's this great potential that James is describing that's that's not what people think. It's much, much higher glorious. In fact, that's what it says. You crowned him with glory, basically. That is pretty amazing when you think about it. And, you know, you can translate Psalm 8 as a little while, Lord. Yeah, that's right. Meaning temporarily. And so that is also a possibility that comes out, particularly in the Septuagint and other Mm -hmm. versions of the Hebrew. And so really human potential is to share with the force of all forces the highest level of being, but it's not handed out at birth because we are all clay models with these infinite capacities that are going to live our lives and make our choices in a world of good and evil, which we will get to in just a minute. Now, what, one more, so, one now, more, Russ, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say one more point. Uh, James has told me we both use Accordance Bible software. Do you use Accordance, Jono? I can't remember. Uh, um, I do have but, it, but I, I have a whole lot of other tools that I'm used to using. This, go ahead. Uh, often I now use the Net Bible, and uh, it's very, very good. It's always has It always has very interesting um, linguistic notes. And here, where it says, I, I read, a little lower than the Elohim, mm-hmm. it mentions you make him lack a little from Elohim. Uh, mm-hmm. So this idea to decrease or to be devoid is used only here in Ecclesiastes 4.8, where it means to deprive, to cause to be lacking. Hmm. So the idea here is that for a small period of time, these creatures, these soil creatures, if you will, 
have been deprived of this status of Elohim. So it's an interesting take on that. All right. That's I like that. I love the Net Bible. I have it yeah. on my computer too, and it, it's very helpful to a translator. I actually used it quite often because it uh, explains different uh, lexicon entries that you can then follow up on. So mm-hmm. we're almost running out of time. Uh, no, and I we're, we're coming up to number nine. We have to, we have number, to jump into number, number nine. nine. And that's, that's chapter three, and verse one. And that was one. 10 is the one, but we, we've got to do nine because this was something that piqued my interest. And that is the fact that you have capitalized Nakash, which is usually translated as snake, but uh, you've got... And you've got another view on that, James. What are you doing with it? I've got a more neutral view on that, that the, first of all, nakash doesn't mean snake. It means uh, the word brass, actually, nakoshed and so forth. It means something shining or gleaming. Mm-hmm. It can either even be, uh, you know, we talk about shiny objects. Uh, it's flashing, the flashing one, the shining one, the one who gets your attention. Mm. Uh Maybe it was a light. Maybe it was a voice. But however it's presented in the story, however it was, it's presented in the story as communicating with Eve and essentially raising the opposite to what God said. Has God said this? Has God said that? Did God say this? And we've covered all the details about how Eve doesn't answer exactly accurately when she answers what God said and so forth. And the fence around the law. Remember that? Uh, mm-hmm. We're not even to touch it, but he didn't say touch it. What I, the reason I left it as Nakash is I don't want people to immediately slide into the idea, oh, I understand that. That's the devil. That's Satan. That's Lucifer, Isaiah 14. That's the fallen angel. That's the book of Revelation, chapter 12. He's cast down to earth and pull in all of that later theology into this poor little chapter that is simply talking about whenever God says something, there's a force in the universe, a shining force. And remember, I don't take Eden absolutely literally. I, I take the meaning of the story very realistically. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whether you think it's literally a garden and everything of that nature. But what's very clear is the meaning. And that is this option of raising the alternative. We see it, for example, in Job. God says, hey, look at my servant Job. He's amazing. He says, yeah, but what about this and that? Always raising the alternative, the opposition. Mm. And that's what Satan actually means with the smallest, right? To Satan Mm -hmm. something is to oppose it. So you could call it the opposer, but Satan isn't used here. So I just don't want people to go into a lot of theological gymnastics at this point and that's why i didn't put the serpent because then immediately all this language comes in and that's one it's of the, the uh, knockoff the, the shining uh, one maybe i sh- i did put it in the footnote but maybe i should have just put the shining one sure mm-hmm. the flashing one i like flashing one <laughs> you like flashing <laughs> like because uh because yeah, again the, the, the tab look, one of look, the things I'm about the, the tab is that it's devoid of uh theological slant uh, if possible. And so that's that's what you're saying. That's why you chose to go with Nakash. Exactly. Okay. Leave it awesome. open. No, I'm I'm ready. I'm, I'm okay. sitting on well, pins then, and needles. I'm ready well, then to we're, roll. We're at number well, 10. This is number, number 10, 10, and this is great because this is where we where we left off in our last, um, uh, last program. Yeah, well, so you asked the question, uh, James. You said, what does it mean? Uh, what is the knowledge of good and bad? What does it mean when it says that? And this is where we are at number 10. Go. 
Yeah, this is so important. And we hinted at a little bit, but let's really talk about it. We've got eight or ten minutes here in our time. Remember the tree. There, Two trees are named, the tree of life, and we're told that if you eat that, you'll live forever, the, the soul creatures, and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. I'm not going to use evil because these are just Hebrew opposites, right? Tov and Ra. So good and bad. Knowledge means experience in Hebrew. Uh, obviously, it involves knowing. But if Adam knows his wife Eve, he's experiencing her. Need I go further, right? And so it's it's the idea of experiencing good and evil. Now, you've always heard, I'm sure, growing up, and you've been around Bible things, both of you. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. And suddenly, on this phrase, knowledge of good and evil, it is only used one other time. In the entire Bible, and that is uh, Deuteronomy 1, 32, where Moses 39. talks about 30, I'm sorry, 39. Yeah. I think I might have had it misprinted in my note then, or maybe I've corrected that. Anyway, I, I wrote down 32. Deuteronomy 1, 39. Ross is the Bible man. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and what does he say? He says, your little ones. Now, he says under 20. So, a lot of grace for kids here, folks. <laughs> I've got kids. Mine are past 20 now but you know it's nice as your kids are growing up to figure they're they're gonna mature and grow and mm. they'll figure something out later but anyway he says your little children who have not yet the knowledge of good and evil so they're not in a garden they're not adam and eve in the garden it's a principle that's being talked about here so it's not a fall but a necessity that comes with what we call in most cultures coming of age mm-hmm. age of accountability at some point, you could maybe it's puberty, maybe it's a little after that, because the brain has to develop, not just the body. But you come to the point where you leave Eden. And what happens when you leave Eden? You put on your clothes, right? And you strike out on your own, and you make your own choice, you build your own world. You right now, every person listening, all three of us, we're the sum total of all the choices and influences that have been upon us and in our lives up until this point. We've become something. We've made our choices. Some have been bad. Some have been good. We've experienced both. It's not so much about sinning. You know, everybody says, as in Adam, all fall. And it implies that God really had a great experiment going. And then that knockcast came in and messed it all up. And now he's got to go back to the drawing board. Oh, what am I going to do? My soul creatures are sinning. I'm going to have to punish them. And maybe I could come up with some way to redeem this mess. That's just not the way it is. What the way it is, is an explanation of how we all have had the Garden of Eden experience, right? As we grow, we begin to look around at the wonder of the world. And we say, what is this place? Where are we now? And we begin to figure things out. Is there a God? Is there a power? What about the force of all forces? And so we are living outside the gates of Eden after a certain age. And certainly our world, as we look at it now, with all of the good and evil that's being done, the good, the bad, the ugly, we often say. uh, It's a composite of life outside Eden. And God allows the freedom to make our own choices. It's one of the scariest things to think about, that when you leave Eden, when you grow up, when you become an adult, when you finally say, 
I can choose anything I want. Then you could choose to go into a grocery store and kill 10 people. Nothing stops you. Wow, that's scary. Or mm-hmm. could go and work in the slums of Calcutta, as Mother Teresa did. You know, I mean, taking to yeah. extreme. And so uh, I think it's so important because it is the key to how we're going to become. We are Elohim already. Uh, he, did you know we're Elohim? The Nakash says your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil as Elohim. In other words, you'll be a rational free creative being with the ability to decide and forge your own life and what is a god other than that a force that is independent we're dependent upon of course but in for our life but where god allows us to make our choices and so cain kills abel first thing that happens early on really horrible so I think it's so inspiring to think that we are these clay creatures given freedom, given a wide open space of a lifespan ahead of us, most of us, if we live a normal lifespan, all those years that pass. You know, people say life is short. Well, life is also long. I had a friend once who he learned one language every 10 years, and when he was 60, he knew five languages fluently. You say... Man, yeah, in 10 years, I could learn a language. 10 years? Wow. Yeah. But most mm-hmm. of us don't do that, right? So he learned five languages fluently, fluently, in addition to the one he was born with. Mm. Uh, uh, so, you know, life is short, yeah, but it's also long. We have a lot of time to choose things, don't we? Mm. And to build. And what's the potential? The potential is to not just know and experience good and evil, but to be given eternal life. That's the potential. And it's not just eternal life like a pill you take. I think it's a transformed, resurrected body that's described only one place in the, the Tanakh. And that's Daniel 12, right? Mm -hmm. Many of those that sleep in the dust will awake. And they'll shine like the stars of heaven forever. Well, that's not a dust creature anymore, is it? Mm. So if we accept Daniel, and I know, you know, Daniel's late uh, dated a lot of people and critical scholars think it's already being influenced by Hellenism. But I don't think resurrection of the dead is anything any Hellenistic uh, culture would come up with. So... Uh, I'm willing, you know, I like Daniel 12, <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Isaiah 26 also talks about dew falling upon Sheol and waking up and swallowing up death forever and wiping all tears. So you don't have to just to depend. But I think the reason there's so little about it in the Hebrew Bible is we're not supposed to be thinking about that. Our purpose is not to ask, how do I get to heaven when I die? Mm. But our purpose is to ask, what am I going to do outside the gates of Eden? Good way to think about it. So that's number 10. That is number 10. Thank you. Well, uh, Ross, final thoughts, my friend. I tell you, I think this is a very tight list if you. I'm just looking at uh, what James sent uh, earlier. The top 10 Genesis gleanings, chapters 1 through 3. I think that's pretty well sums up in a real close way what those chapters really present as the ideal. I'm, I'm impressed. I like the list. And you can post that if you want. It's just notes, Jono. But people, if they listen and have the notes, you know, they can study it a little more. That'd be and great. I'll have, yeah, I'll have that under, the, uh, under this uh, podcast. You'll see that uh, there on Truth To You. Dear listeners, uh, the book, of course, is the book of Genesis, the first in the series of a new translation 
from the Transparent English Bible uh, by Dr. James Tabor. My friend, thank you so much for coming back and giving us a round off uh, of where we're up to. And I guess as we progress, we're going to be picking up in chapter four. We will, and and it, and we'll get back to the translation itself more. And there's so many things ahead where we're going to get this transparent view of the Hebrew, and so many things will become clear. So I can't don't, wait to uh, do it. Yeah, don't, don't forget, dear listeners, uh, the book is on special in all its forms, hardback, paperback, and in Kindle. It's a uh, Pesach special. Uh, just go to Amazon. You'll see that there. Now is the time to buy it. And while you're there, uh, and for those who have already purchased the book and have been reading through it, go to Amazon and leave a five-star review. We'd love to have a look at some of those and maybe read them out on the program. And uh, once again, jamestabor.com, where you can find all of James's web pages, books, and projects. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure you'll keep us up to date with Restoring Abrahamic Faith uh, when that'll be available again. So we're looking forward to that. That's all we have time for, dear listeners. Thank you for tuning in, and we will be with you this time next week. And until then, have a great one. Thanks. See you, Jono. See you, Ross.